John 7. We're going to read the last verse of uh, the chapter, which is verse number 53. Before we read this, I will say that your Bible, if, you, if you're reading a hard copy, the digital copies don't have a lot of footnotes and cross-references and stuff, but if you have a, a hard copy, you likely have some sort of footnote or bracket or arrow or, or something in your Bible that, that basically says to the tune of, the earliest manuscripts don't have the story in it. Now, there's a lot of theories as to why that is that I'm not going to get into this morning, but there's, there's a lot of, you know, hey, John didn't write this, but the early church put it in here, or the opposite, John did write it, but the early church took it out because they feared that people would just commit adultery and, and have no repercussions, or the earliest manuscripts are, are tainted. So there's a lot of theories, but the, the point being this morning that I'm, I'm going to I'm not going to dodge that issue, but I am going to deflect it. Uh, I, I hope to do kind of a three-week mini-series on uh, the authority of Scripture, uh, Bible versions, what issues are at play there. And this text is a great example of that. So hopefully before the year is over, we'll circle back around to this and use this as some talking points in a discussion. Uh, but this morning, we're going to ignore that, and we're going to use this as it should be used for our edification, for our growth, for our maturation, and, and take this and, and look at the story of the life and ministry of Jesus. So I won't bore you with details today. I'll just bore you with details on a different day and, and we'll, we'll love it then maybe. So John 7 verse 53, here we go. Every man went to his own house and ate one. Jesus went into the Mount of Olives. So kind of like they went to their own corners, right? Like the first round is over. They go to their corners and they're gonna reconvene in the morning. Uh, verse two, and early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had sat her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw no one but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Let us pray. We'll have uh, one more song, and then we'll begin to understand this. Father, we thank you this morning for what we've already been able to experience uh, just in worshiping you. Lord, the, the, the choir special, the songs that we've sung, uh, my heart is already overflowing. And I pray that that would continue uh, through this song, that you would magnify the gospel and the cross through this. Lord, I pray that we would that we would be aligned to think the right way on a number of issues today from this text. I pray that you would uh, teach our hearts, Lord, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. We look to you for this and we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide today. In Jesus' name, amen. It's not 
just about the manger where the baby lay. It's not all about the angels who sang for him that day. It's not about the shepherds or the bright and shining star. It's not all about the wise men who traveled from afar. It's about the cross. It's about my sin. It's about how Jesus came to be born once so that we could be born again. It's about the stone that was rolled away so that you and I could have real life someday. It's about the cross. It's not just about the good things in this life I've done. It's not all about the treasures or the trophies that I've won. It's not about the righteousness that I find within. It's all about His precious blood that saved me from my sin. It's about the cross. It's about my sin. So that we could be born again It's about the stone that was rolled away So that you and I could have real life someday It's about the cross The beginning of the story is wonderful and great But it's the ending that can save you and that's why we celebrate. It's about the cross. It's about my sin. It's about how Jesus came to be born once so that we could be born again. It's about God's Son nailed to a tree. It's about how every drop of blood that flowed from him when it should have been me. It's about the stone that was rolled away so that you and I could have real life someday. So that you and I could have real life someday. About the cross. It's about the cross. It's about the We don't even need a sermon. Let's just go home. It's over. So, uh, man, if that doesn't excite you, I don't know what to tell you. You need to get saved or something. So that's, uh, 
It, that's the truth though, isn't it? And, and that's really what we want to be as a church. We want to be about the cross, uh, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. We want to be at the, about the gospel. And so centered on that, not just for people to get saved and be evangelistic, but to, to live our lives from. And uh, I hope that this morning you'll even see that here in John chapter number eight. We're going to walk through this story and then we're going to take some implications away from the story. So the story is set up by giving you kind of the, the time and the place and what's happening. And this is, this is really married to chapter 7. So you have to remember a couple sermons back here. Chapter 7 was this Feast of Tabernacles, this week-long festival that Jesus' brothers kind of poke fun at him and they say, hey, are you going to go down there and show yourself? And Jesus says, no, you go ahead. My time's not ready. And Jesus comes in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. There are all these people looking for him, talking about Jesus. Where is he? Is he going to show up? Should we believe him? Should we not? And he gets there in the middle and he stands up with clarity, with authority, and he demonstrably says that, that I'm the Messiah, that I'm from God, that you should believe on me. And you start to see through the whole chapter seven, all of these divergent views of Jesus, all these people speculated, he's the Messiah. No, he's not. We believe on him. No, we don't. He is a devil. He's crazy. We should arrest him. You see all these different perspectives happening and swirling. And the end of the chapter ends with Jesus on the last day of the feast, standing up and saying, hey, you need to believe on me. I'm going to make you a fountain from you. We're going to flow springs of living water, talking about the Holy Spirit that he's going to send. And the rulers are befuddled. They've sent these people to arrest Jesus, and they're like, we can't arrest this guy. You told us he was crazy, but he ain't crazy. Nobody talks like this guy. And it kind of ends with this unresolved tension of the rulers going into their corner, Jesus going into his corner, and then the next morning, round two starts. And it's going to pick back up again, and it tells us that there's Jesus sitting at the temple, has all these people around him, very normal way for a rabbi to teach, that people would sit down, that the rabbi would even sit down, and almost like duck, duck, goose or something, you know? You'd sit there, and, and you'd teach people, and they come with this woman taken in adultery, and they put her in the, in the midst of, of these people that he's teaching, which had to have been wildly awkward, but they set her there, and it says in verse 3 that the scribes and the Pharisees say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery. Then it says, In the very act, now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? So they bring her, she's caught. They're not asking Jesus, is she guilty? They're asking Jesus, she's guilty. What should we do with her guilt? Should we stone her or not? And they point to the Mosaic law in Leviticus 20, verse 10. This is if a man and a woman are, are caught in adultery, then, then they should be stoned. And now I will say this. The Jewish law made it virtually impossible for someone to get to a point to where they actually would be stoned for some sort of sexual sin or adultery. The reason being is that, that the Bible and, and just common sense tells you to take capital punishment very seriously. And it wasn't something that they, that they divvied out willy-nilly. It was something that had to have been established by not one witness. You had to have at least two witnesses who saw the very act. And the text accentuates that and says, in the very act. You couldn't have two witnesses that saw someone coming out of a house late at night in a compromising position, sitting on the couch. You had to have had two witnesses that were in complete unanimity and an agreement of their testimony under cross-examination that they agreed and they saw this happening. So to get to that point is very difficult to get to, but they say, we've got this. 
we have this. There's an Old Testament a story, excuse me, not Old Testament, it's an apocryphal story, uh, but in the Old Testament time frame about a woman named Susanna who was a, a devout Jewish woman, and there were two men, these rulers who were pagan, who wanted to sleep with her, and she would not give in. And they told her, we will blackmail you, and we will put our testimony together, and we will say that we saw you committing adultery, and you will die because our testimony will seal the deal, and we'll do this to you if you don't. And she refused, and they gave testimony that she had committed adultery, and they saw her in this garden, and, and this boy ran out, but they couldn't catch the boy. And, and they, they do this, and they separate them and cross-examine them, and they end up acquitting Susanna and not killing her because the men's testimony did not allow line on a type of tree that was in the corner of the garden. So to, it, it was a very, it was a very high bar to get to the point where you would actually execute someone for, for some sort of sexual misconduct. The Mishnah, which is the, the Old Testament commentary on the law, said that if some sort of Jewish courthouse was executing more than one person every seven years, it was a slaughterhouse. So the point being for them to be at this spot, where they have multiple witnesses who has caught this woman in the very act, it very likely is a setup. It's almost impossible for them to just stumble upon this and for this to just happen. It, it is very likely that they have set the stage. And further evidence for the fact that they probably did do this is where's the man, right? They bring the woman, but you know, bicycling and bowling and fishing are solo sports. Adultery is a team sport. And they only got one. And they bring just the woman, not the man. And we can't say 100% certain that they had set the stage and that they had, you know, created this sort of entrapment. But it's, it's highly likely that they did. And here they come to Jesus and they, and they say, here's this woman, what should we do? Which at the very least, they're very, being very partial by just bringing the woman, which the Old Testament was against. The Bible works very hard, Old and New Testament, to try to to try to untangle what would naturally happen, that rich versus poor mentality or men versus women mentality, that it tries very hard to, to, to work against that, not have partiality. But they come with this and they say this in verse six, the text says that they said this to tempt him, that they might have to accuse him. And Jesus stooped down and wrote with his finger as though he heard them not. So I will say we have no idea what Jesus wrote. Uh, there are whole sermons that are dedicated to the topic of what did Jesus write in the ground and all these hypotheses. He may have played tic-tac-toe. I have no idea what he did, and no, nor does anybody else. But it does tell us that the reason they do this is not because they have pure motives. It's not because they, they, you know, they want to be these stellar beacons of truth and shine light. They're doing this because they want to trap Jesus. And it's an ingenious trap. This, this has devilish ingenuity and only Jesus could have worked out of this. So they have him on, on really two accounts. On one hand, they have him to where if Jesus says, yeah, I agree with the law of Moses, they can just take her, stone her real quick, kill her. And they were under, Jewish people were under Roman law and the Romans had to be the ones that pronounced execution. They came in and said, no, 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 you can do your thing, but you got to get our stamp of approval. So they know that if Jesus says, well, yeah, I agree with Moses, they kill her real quick. The Romans come, what did you do? Well, that leader guy, they're saying he's the Messiah, that he has all this authority, he's from God, he told us to, and they can get in trouble with Rome, probably executed with Rome. 
They also have him on the horns of a dilemma over here that Jesus has been this consummate teacher of grace and, and, and compassion and mercy and has been this guy that they despise because he's with the lowlifes, he's with the publicans, he's with the sinners, he's with the drunkards, he's with these people and showing them mercy and telling them, I didn't come for, the, for those that are well, I came for the sick so that they could be saved. And so here's this guy that is this, this consummate teacher of compassion. And they have him to where if Jesus says, you know what? Yeah, Moses, go ahead. They can stone and say, look, you know, meek and lowly. Come to Jesus. His, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Come to him with your sins and he'll execute you. Yeah, look at him, great teacher. Or if Jesus says, no, 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 compassion. Love for, care for, change. You, you need to change, but, but let, let's help her. Well, look, he says he agrees with Moses. He says Moses is from God. He says he believes in the law of Moses. He doesn't believe in the law of Moses. He won't obey the law of Moses. So they think they have him. It's an ingenious trap. And what Jesus does is more ingenious. It says that he writes on the ground and then they keep asking him, verse seven, and he lifts up himself and he says to them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And then he goes back to doodling on the ground. And it says that they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, and this is interesting to me, beginning at the eldest, even until the last, so oldest first, then youngest. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So what does Jesus say? He does not say, don't throw a stone. He never says that. He, he never weighs in on capital punishment, yay or nay, really. What he does say is, throw a stone, but make sure the one that does it was, is without sin. Now, what does he mean? Does he mean you have to be sinless and perfect in order to pronounce judgment upon somebody and in order to judge righteously. There's no way he could have meant that because that, that wouldn't have been tenable for any judgment at any point in time. What he is saying is in this particular instance of you bringing me this woman, you are not qualified to be a witness and you are not qualified to be an executioner and you aren't qualified to have this conversation. What he's more or less saying is the very law of Moses that you are invoking and you're pointing to and you're asking me to weigh in on is the law of Moses that you're breaking. What about conspiracy? That in line with the law of Moses, guys? What, what about partiality? Is that in line with the law of Moses? Perhaps he's even implying, what about your own sexual misconduct? Is that in line with the law of Moses? But Jesus is, is he's pricking them and he's sticking them here and cutting them to the heart. And it says that beginning at the oldest to the youngest, their conscience begins to gnaw at them and they, they walk away. Now, I have to at least answer the question, why youngest to oldest? That, that struck me as strange. I don't know that I have a, a, a precise answer to that, but I think the answer is the older you are, the more ready you should be to admit your faults. I think. It probably could be a whole other sermon, but the older you are, you normally just bend one way or the other that either you, you become more gracious and you realize your own faults and you, and you have walked in other people's shoes over and over and over again and you, and you are ready to admit your faults easier or you become batting down the hatches, more sure, everything I say, say goes and I'm more stubborn than I ever have been and I think that this is at least an indication that the older you are, you should admit your faults more readily. That being said though, they leave and Jesus lifts up just the woman now and he says to her, Where'd they go? Nobody condemned you? And she says unto him, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Which is the gospel in a phrase. There is, there is exquisite balance there. 
He tells her, go and sin no more. Like there's no, there's no blame shifting. There's no victim mentality. There, there is no putting up with, you know, well, it wasn't my fault. They set me up. I was entrapped. I couldn't help myself. There's, there's none of that. Go and sin no more means you're guilty. It doesn't mean you're not guilty. It means you are guilty. And he demands life change. He demands conversion. And he says, don't do this anymore. But at the same time, he prefaced it with neither do I condemn thee, which is the heart and the essence of Christianity. It's the genius of, of the gospel, that you are guilty, but there is, there is no condemnation. If, you, if you've accepted Jesus, despite your guilt and despite your past and, and despite all of the, I'll even say sexual misconduct, let's just be real, 90% of the room, if there was a top five list of sins that you would not want to be made known public and you would not want to be displayed, 90% of the room, it's gonna be the sexual misconduct from your past or your present. And even in that situation, Jesus says, I don't condemn you, but stop it, go sin no more. We're told in Romans 4 that God justifies us and does not condemn us because of the cross and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. We're told that Jesus who knew no sin took on sin. That's why, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, that there's no condemnation, but at the same time, there's a challenge. There's a challenge to live life out of that and to do what's right. So what are the implications of this? The implications are vast, but I'm gonna give you two and a half, okay? I'm gonna give you two, and I'm just gonna stick one on at the end just for good measure, but I'll be quick with the third one. So here are, in my estimations, the best implications from this text. First being, sexual misconduct should be treated with clarity and compassion, both. This is an important point because it hits real life for us. We live in a sex-crazed culture. We are inundated every day with, with messages about how sexuality is just okay and you can do whatever you want. We, in this room, we have classmates that are bisexual. We have homosexual neighbors that are inviting us to their wedding. We have family members that have been living together for three, four, five, six years. And we're asking them, when well, are you gonna put a ring on their finger? And, and well, you know, you gotta test drive it first before you buy the car. And, and that's, that's real life. Our teenagers are being pressured to lose their virginity at an early age. The guys at work claim that everybody views pornography and, and you're weird if you don't view pornography and there's no big deal and my wife's okay with it. And on and on I could go. Like that is, that's just the truth of, of where we live unless you live in a bubble and you're, and you're not around unbelievers at any length of time. But that's, that's reality for us. So what do we do with these issues that come up? I, I think the best guiding principle would be found here in this text that you treat it with clarity and compassion. Let me start with clarity. Our culture would have told this woman you're two consenting adults. Who are we to judge? You have nothing to apologize for. Live the lifestyle you want just as long as you're not hurting anybody. Here's a rainbow sticker for your camel. Join our parade and let's have fun. That's what culture would have told her. Who are we to judge? That's your choice as long as you're not hurting anybody. Jesus tells her very clearly, go and sin no more. Jesus, okay, was she sinning? According to Jesus, absolutely. Was Jesus scared to weigh in on that? No. Does he struggle to tell her that? No. He's not vague about it. 
He doesn't rubber stamp her lifestyle. He is very, very clear, quite the opposite. He tells her, I want you to change. This is wrong. Stop. He's demanding heart change. He's demanding conversion. Go and say no more. But that clarity about righteousness is coupled with and first presented with compassion. There's a a passage in Matthew where Matthew quotes Isaiah about the Messiah, about Jesus. And he says that our Jesus is the one who fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah that a bruised reed shall he not break and a smoking flax shall he not quench till he bring forth judgment unto victory. What does that mean? Jesus is the Messiah prophesied of Isaiah that he will not break the bruised reed and he will not quench the smoked flax and and he will bring forth judgment unto victory. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that Jesus the Messiah combined compassion and justice so perfectly that the world had never seen anything like it. That he wasn't a compromise between strong and tender, but he was strong and tender mingled together. Keller said it this way. He said, he's just and righteous to the nth degree and he's compassionate and melt in your mouth gentle to the nth degree. These traits do not fight in him. They unite in him. You find in this text that here is Jesus, a, even according to Isaiah, a person of power and majesty and authority, that he will bring forth judgment to victory, that he will conquer evil. But you also find this sensitive, gentle, compassionate, melt-in-your-mouth Savior, that a bruised reed he won't break. That which is so fragile and so tender that the slightest mishandling would send it into a million pieces. That 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 which is being held together by just the filament and is so tender that in his hands it won't be harmed, it will be healed. To to push the metaphor into your own life. Your, Your heart of a bruised reed, your mess, your broken life in his hands is not gonna be hurt, he's gonna heal that. A smoking flax, that which is, is, is just about to go out, isn't burning anymore, but is just giving off the smoke and is about to be quenched. He's not going to quench that. He'll take your flickering soul and he's not going to stamp that out or damage it, but put it in his hands. There's gentle and there's compassion. And, and there's, you find in that, in that prophecy of Isaiah, this gentleness in Jesus, but yet this commanding presence of bringing forth judgment to victory. And you find with this woman that he's flawless. The strength and the righteousness and, and the, the clarity to say that this is right or wrong, but at the same time, the compassion that's married to it. And how I wish all Christians were like Jesus when it came to this. There's such a balance here to be struck that I have not, nor will I strike it perfectly in the future, nor have you probably, and you probably know a few knuckleheads that, have, that haven't struck the balance perfectly either. And this is such an example of how Jesus treats these social outcasts that come within his orbit. The lepers, the Mary Magdalene, the the demon lady, publicans, the woman at the well. And there's, there's extreme danger in taking sexual misconduct and treating it too softly, but there's extreme danger in taking sexual misconduct and treating it too heavily. Too softly would be, you know what? Who am I to judge 
let's just be compassionate and empathetic, which eventually turns you into a moral relativist that you can never draw a line in the sand. You can never say what's right and wrong. You can never just boldly and courageously say, look, this is what God's word says. I, I don't have to apologize for it. I don't have to edit it. You know, maybe you wish it didn't say that. Sometimes I wish it didn't say that, but that's what it says. And to be clear, and there, there are churches and there are whole denominations that are more or less saying, you know what, why don't we just get with the times? Everyone else around us is saying that these things are not a big deal. So let's just, yeah, it's just not a big deal anymore. No big deal. And I would ardently withstand that and say, no, there, there is right and wrong. There is, if, if you know Jesus as your savior and, and he's the Lord of your life, then, then he gets to tell you what's right and wrong and he gets to dictate that. You don't march to the beat of, of culture's drum. You don't take your cues from them. You, you have to be able to, and be willing to courageously stand, no, with clarity. This is, this is wrong, this is not okay. But at the same time, there's a danger of being too heavy and, and being too crushing people with your morality, and, and this is right and this is wrong, and having no compassion mingled with that. And there are whole churches and denominations that have more or less operated that way. To act like the sexual sin is worse than other kinds of sins, to act like if you've committed some sort of sexual sin, now you're creepy, now you're a second-class Christian. And they wouldn't say it in those words, but that's more or less how it goes. Which even, we talked about this at Christmas, even the genealogy of Jesus worked so hard to tell us that's not true. That's not true. The genealogy of Jesus is riddled with Rahab the harlot, Tamar the incestuous. These people that were used of God and, and, and turned the corner and were able to come to Jesus and, and find forgiveness and change their life and, and, and use their mess as a bit of a message to tell other people that Jesus can do this for you. And there are a lot of believers currently and previously who have taken the LGBT community or have taken those who have, you know, whatever sexual deviance they perceive and treat it with hate or with fear. And I withstand that just as ardently as I withstand those who are soft and say there's nothing wrong with it. You have to have both. You have to have clarity for sure, but you have to have compassion and there has to be a heart of love. And this is a perfect example of people who have no compassion or love for this lady. They don't care about this lady. They're, they don't care about morality. They're just trying to trap Jesus. Then you have Jesus on the other hand, who is willing to say, go and sin no more. Let's be clear about this. But at the same time is willing to say, I don't condemn you. What is he doing? He's, he's pulling this woman in close. And we have to ask ourselves the question, as Christians, as a church even, are we willing to speak clearly, but also pull people in close and to say, let us show you the grace and the love and the forgiveness and the no condemnation of Jesus that you need. It has to be both. And I think it's a challenge. I think it's, a, I think it's an important challenge for individuals and for our church corporately to have the heart of Jesus, to understand we need clarity with compassion. Secondly, and maybe most importantly, you don't work for your forgiveness, you work from your forgiveness. There's an important order when he talks to this woman. He, he does not say, get your act together, come back, stop sinning, then I won't condemn you anymore and then I'll forgive you. That's not what he says. He says, I do not condemn you, I give you forgiveness now let's work on life from here. Now, now let's change something from here. This isn't don't sin, I won't condemn. It's the opposite. It's there's no condemnation. Now stop sinning. 
Here is my no condemnation stamp of approval. Now leave your sin behind. What do you want that for anymore? You have my love and you have my forgiveness. Now I, I must be clear on this. When I say that we should work from our forgiveness, I do not mean your forgiveness of yourself. I've heard a lot of people, good people, strong Christians, been around church a long time, that, that know their Bible well, but will say something to the tune of, I know God's forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. Which sounds very humble, but it's very haughty. And it doesn't work. What, if, if that's your heart, and that's, hey, you know, I think I've said that a time or two. You have to understand what you're saying. What you're saying is, I know that Jesus has forgiven me. I know that God has said no condemnation. I know that my sins are removed and I've been made the righteousness of Christ and he has justified me. I know that, but <clears throat> I don't know that I can accept that. I don't know that I can forgive myself. What you're doing is you're taking the verdict of Jesus and saying, mm, don't know if I buy that. That's not good enough for me. I gotta make my own verdict. And I don't know that I can, that my, in my estimation and in my verdict, I don't know that I can forgive myself. I think I still am guilty. Now you tell me, can the district court overturn the verdict of the Supreme Court? No. Why? District court, circuit court, Supreme Court. That's the highest court. The Supreme Court gets to overturn the verdict of the district court, but not in the opposite. And when you say, I don't know that I can forgive myself. What you're saying is, I understand that the highest court in the universe has declared me not guilty, no condemnation forgiven, but in my little court where I sit on the throne and I hold the gavel, I, I declare myself, I don't know if I can forgive myself and do this. And you're trying to overturn the verdict of God and it shouldn't be that way. The, 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 to say, I don't know if I forg can forgive myself is to attest to the fact that I don't know that I'm trusting in God and I'm accepting what he says about me which shouldn't be. And honestly, you're putting a burden on yourself that never should have been there in the first place. It's not your job to rule on yourself and declare yourself guilty or not or forgiven or not. That's not your job. Jesus sits on the throne and we account to him and he's the judge of the whole world. Therefore, he gets to decide. And when he says no condemnation, ain't no condemnation. You have forgiveness, your guilt should be gone. It's, it's over, it's done. So when we say work from your forgiveness, what we're saying is, if God has said, neither I, do I condemn thee, go and sin no more, then you work from that, not for that. For is performance-based. And that's how, it's tricky because that's how most of life works. Most of our horizontal human structures are set up on a performance basis. You perform well as an airline and I'll fly with you again and give, me, give you my business again. You perform well at work, you get a promotion. You get, you get a bonus. You don't perform well, you don't. You perform well in school and you get an A. You, you don't study hard enough and you don't do good enough, then you get a C. That's how life works, right? But is salvation performance-based, yes or no? No. Why? Jesus has already done all the performing. Jesus has done all that's necessary. He has done it for you. It's acceptance of what he has done, his, his cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and applying that to your life. It's not performance-based. And to live that way will kill you. You will be on a treadmill of trying to earn God's favor, trying to get his forgiveness, over and over and over, and you will be exhausted. 
The Christian life will not be life. It will be a burden and it will be tiring and it will, it will weigh you down because you never know if you have God's favor. Is God smiling at me? Is God happy at me? Did I do enough today? You'll, you'll never know that and you'll constantly try and constantly try and you will be exhausted and your soul will have bags under its eyes and you, you won't want to tell anybody, but you'll say, I'm so tired, I can't do this anymore. If, and that's, many of you have a Catholic background. Some of you may be Catholic friends in the room today and, and you're not Baptist, but you grew up that way. I love you, but I will say this. The, as a whole, the Catholic church is performance-based. It's, it's do your penance and, and, and make sure you, you, you know, do the venial sins, that's okay. You get rid of those a little bit, but don't do the mortal sins and, and make sure you go through the motions and, and definitely stay Catholic because you, you can't, and it is this performance based and hopefully my good outweighs my bad and I get to heaven and the scales tip my way and then everything will be good. Which is anti-gospel. It's anti what Jesus teaches. It's anti, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. You want to work from your forgiveness. I will give, there is a little in between. There are, there are, there are a lot of Baptist churches. Some of you have fallen into this trap inevitably where you're not necessarily performing for your forgiveness, but you feel like I've been given forgiveness. So now because I've been given forgiveness, now I have to perform. Right? There's, there's this kind of debt-based thing that sometimes we fall into where, you know what? God told me no condemnation and he forgave me and he gave me a home in heaven. Thank you so much. Now I owe him and now I have to perform. So do we owe God? It's a trick question. Yes and no. Okay, let me put it this way. When you got saved, did God give you a payment plan? He gave you a little coupon book that tells you on the first of the month, your payment is due, do this, and then we'll be good? No. And there are a lot of Christians that treat the Christian life that day. Lord, thank you so much. This is amazing. Look what I got. But now I got to start paying on this. Now I owe you. Now, now I have to, now I have to give you my due, right? It'd be like me buying you a car, but only paying the down payment on the car and then sticking you with the monthly payments. The first month, it'd be awesome. You spent no money and you got new wheels and it smells good. And everybody's like, you got a new car. Great. But once that payment starts to be due, it gets old fast, right? Because in a year into it, and a two years into it, three years into it, new car ain't new anymore, and it got dents on it. It doesn't smell as good anymore, and you're still stuck with the payments of what I gave to you. And a lot of Christians, more or less, have been programmed by their, by their churches to say, you know what? Look at salvation. It's amazing. It's awesome. Look at this free gift. I get forgiveness. Not, nothing that I did, but now here's, here's my payment schedule. I got to figure out how I owe God and how I got to pay him back. And the church is a little debt collection station and pastor is the debt collector. And I come to church every week and I, and I have to, I have to give my, you know, I got to show up and I, I got to tithe and I got to be, why? Because I owe God, which is so unhealthy. It's still a perform. It's just a twist of a performance base, and that too will kill you. It'll kill you. You'll hate church. I, if people have that mentality, I don't blame them for not coming to church. I wouldn't want to come either. If this was me paying my due every week, and what happens then is you start to get, you know, you get beat up. You owe God. You're not good enough. Look what you're doing. You should be paying more. What's your problem? But the truth of the gospel is exactly what Jesus told this woman. I do not condemn you. Why? Not based on what we do. Freely, graciously, gifted. 
Now from that, go and sin no more. It's exactly what Ephesians 5 tells us. That we as dear children should walk in love just as Christ loved himself and he gave himself as a sacrifice, a sweet smelling savor for us. You walk from that forgiveness, from that love. And if you're a parent or a grandparent, you get it. If my daughter, she can't articulate this now because she's just about to be three, but let's say three years from now, she comes to me and Willow says, Dad, I'm overwhelmed that you and mom got me in the family. I did nothing to, to make this happen, but you guys did it all and it's amazing. Thank you so much. I owe you so much. What do you want me to give to you? I'm saying, Willow, you don't owe me anything. I love you. You're a dear child. You have my heart. I love you. And we are to walk, according to Ephesians 5, as dear children in love. That the heart of God for you is, I have adopted you. I have made you my own. I have forgiven you. I have claimed you. I, I have done this for you. Not because of you, but because, be, just because I, I did this and it's yours. Now, now work from this. Be in awe of that. Let, let that just smack your heart around a little bit and, and be enamored by that. And then from there, begin to live. And when you, when you have someone that loves you unconditionally, it's easy to love them back. And it's easy to, to reciprocate that. But when you have someone that just kind of likes you and put, puts up with you and, and kind of, I oh, like you sometimes and the other times, and oh, I don't know. It's tough to love that person to want to, and to want to give back to that person. And you have in the heart of God, as we sing this morning, a good father who loves you and has said, no condemnation, done, over. Now from that, go and sin no more. And there is a difference. There's a huge difference. There's a difference between I got to pay God back and that gets old and it gets tired and it gets heavy. And, but you go to love and you go to look at what he did and I'm in all of this. It's no longer, well, I better do this or God's going to be mad at me. It's, well, I don't want that stuff anymore. But forget that mess. Look at what he did for me. I'm, I'm gonna give back to him out of a heart of love. And he is trying, it's so compressed in this phrase with this woman. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Operate from that. That's a paradigm shift for a lot of people. But that's the gospel. That, that's how you plant and root and grow in the gospels from that perspective. That's wind in your sails for the Christian life. You'll go from rowing to sailing. It'll be a difference. Last point, and this is the add-on. I'll put it this way. Call him Lord. This woman says very little in this text, but she does say this, Lord. What does it mean to call him Lord? It means that I see he has not condemned me and he offers me grace freely. And I'm gonna do his bidding. I'm going to do what he wants because of that. And many of you, I've, I know your testimony. We've sat down, we've talked, we've had meals. And, and so many of you, I know your testimony. Some of you, I don't. But if you've never come to the place where you have seen the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and it's good news, that he offers you his forgiveness freely, takes away your guilt and your shame, no condemnation. The highest court in the universe says you're free. It's done. It's over. And you've never accepted that. Call him Lord today. Call out to him and say, Lord, I believe. 
Lord, I trust you get control and allow him to be Lord in your life. If you have, thank him for it and praise him for it. If you haven't, I, I don't just challenge you, I encourage you to do it today because it's the best decision you'll ever make in your life.